At the moment of my birth in the city of Edmonton in February of 1970, I became a citizen of Canada by virtue of the fact that uh, I had two Canadian parents and I was also born on Canadian soil. Being a citizen of Canada means that you enjoy certain rights and privileges, of course, but you also have, as a Canadian citizen, certain responsibilities. For example, on the side of rights and privileges for Canadian citizens, we might talk about the right of mobility. Canadian citizens enjoy the freedom to live and work and travel anywhere in Canada. Or we might also talk about another right that we enjoy as Canadian citizens, which is the right to be presumed innocent in a court of, of court of law until proven guilty. Or we might also mention the right to vote in Canadian elections once we turn 18, just to name a few of our rights. And as Canadian citizens, we're also privileged, are we not, with freedoms. The freedom of conscience, the freedom of religion, uh, the freedom of peaceful assembly, the freedom of association. But citizenship in Canada also entails certain responsibilities, doesn't it? As citizens of Canada, we have the responsibility to obey Canadian laws. We are also duty-bound to serve on a jury, should we be selected for jury duty. Uh, we also have the responsibility to respect the rights and the freedoms of others, and so on and so forth. The point here is that citizenship not only here in Canada, but in virtually any nation on earth, citizenship comes with certain rights, privileges, and responsibilities. Well, this morning's passage in our study of Philippians is about citizenship. It's about living out our citizenship. But the citizenship in question here is not Canadian citizenship or American or Filipino or Jamaican citizenship, it is rather heavenly citizenship. In this passage, the Apostle Paul exhorts the church, exhorts us to live out our heavenly citizenship in the context of everyday life here on earth. And what we're going to see is that heavenly citizenship has teeth to it. It has contours about it that are very much defined in Scripture. Well, we're at Philippians 1, verse 27, if you have a Bible open. Now, in verses 12 through 26, just as a review, 12 to 26, which we have looked at over the past couple of weeks, Paul has just outlined for his Philippian readers his own conduct, or his uh, Christ-like gospel example, the example that he set even as he was confined there in prison. Now, at verse 27, he says to the Philippians, in essence, he says, follow my example. You too conduct yourselves with Christ-like humility and with Christ-like boldness and with the patience of Jesus Christ in your corner of the world. 
So let's look at the opening phrase of verse 27 very carefully. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now notice that word only that begins the verse there. Say you come to me and I have a table in front of me with uh, three different screwdrivers on it lying there and you say to me, I need to take a screw out of a board and the, board, uh, the screw has a star-shaped top. I will say to you, well then, take only the Phillips screwdriver. The Robertson and the flathead are irrelevant to you. Only one screwdriver is necessary for your role. The others are not. Well, Paul uses this word only here. What's he saying? He's saying there's one thing necessary, church. There's one thing necessary, just one thing. Other things aren't as relevant. And what's the one thing? The one thing is to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this exhortation here, this command here, is highly important in this letter because it controls the argument all the way down through chapter 2, verse 18. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the main imperative in this section of the letter. So we need to take a little bit of time to unpack this and to meditate on it and to listen to what God is saying to us here. There is a single Greek word in the original text of Philippians 1.27 from which we get our English translation, let your manner of life. The single Greek word in the original text literally means this. It means live as a citizen. Live as a citizen. This is a citizenship word. And so in his commentary on Philippians, Peter O'Brien has well captured the sense here with his translation. As citizens of heaven... Live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Once more, as citizens of heaven, that's what believers are. As citizens of heaven, live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. I think O'Brien nicely captures the citizenship nature of the Greek term here. Now, we spoke a little earlier about the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that come with being a Canadian citizen. Well, Paul's readers in first century Philippi were living in a Roman colony. Many in, the, in that city who lived in that city enjoyed uh, the rights and privileges and the responsibilities of Roman citizenship. One of the responsibilities that Romans had was to uphold the dignity of the empire. To uphold the dignity of the empire. Their behavior could bring either honor or shame to the Roman Empire. Their conduct could enhance the reputation of Rome or it could damage that reputation. But here in our verse, Paul is not talking about Roman citizenship and the honor of the emperor Nero. He's talking to the church 
concerning our heavenly citizenship and how we bring honor to King Jesus. He's talking about our kingdom citizenship and how in our everyday lives, even in the mundane parts of our lives, in every moment, in every circumstance, in every interaction, that kingdom citizenship must have a direct bearing on our conduct, on our actions, on our words, on our attitudes, on the entirety of our lives. As rebirthed people, people who have been born again by the Spirit of God, we are citizens of heaven who also just happen to live in Canada. The first sermon series I ever preached at Snowden was on 1 Peter. And one of the big themes that we have in 1 Peter is the theme of exile. You remember that? The fact that as born-again believers, as Christ's church, we are exiles. Exiles whose true home is the new heavens and the new earth. But as exiles, we are commanded by God to engage this world as heavenly citizens. We are not to withdraw from the world. We are to engage the world and the culture around us. The church is to fight the good fight, engaged on the battlefield. And as Matthew Harmon puts it, the church is to serve, listen to this, as an outpost. The church is to serve as an outpost of God's kingdom, a place where his rule and his reign can be seen tangibly on both the individual and corporate levels. Citizens of heaven who live for now in what Augustine called the city of man. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here at the start of verse 27, it might help us, might help you, and it might help me to picture a weigh scale with two pans. If you put six pounds of something in one pan, but only one pound in the other, what's going to happen? Obviously, there will be an imbalance, right? And one side will tip, and the other one will go up, and one will go down. Well, Paul is after a balance here at the beginning of verse 27, and the specific balance that he's urging is a balance between our manner of life on one side and the gospel of Christ on the other side. Notice that in the verse. He's after a balance. Our manner of life, our life as citizens, must measure the same or have an equivalence with the standard weight which is the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We are to measure our conduct, friends, our conduct, our words, our actions by the standard, which is the gospel of Christ. So, as an example, in the gospel of Christ, there is immeasurable, unexpected, undeserved grace that comes our way. Would you agree? Does our conduct 
reflect that flavor of divine grace toward other people. In the gospel, we have a king who sacrificed himself for his enemies and whose whole life was governed by love to God and by love to neighbor. Can we point to specifics in our lives where we reflect him even in a very dim way? So let's hear God as he examines us through this text in his word, which he always does when we open the Bible. Let's hear him examining our hearts and our minds. And if necessary, let's confess to God. Let's repent to God of our failure and ask him for the power to change. God grants and gives enablement to obey the things that he commands. Amen? Well, let's continue along in our text. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, and here Paul isn't sure about the outcome of his imprisonment, for one thing. Neither is he sure about the path that God will have him take should he be released. Will that path lead him back to Philippi to see the believers there? He's not, at this point, entirely sure about the outcome. Whether I come and see you or am absent, Paul says, I desire to hear of you that you are what? Standing firm, notice the language, standing firm in one spirit. He's talking to the church corporate. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now what we will learn as this text progresses in verses 28, 29, and 30 is that the Philippian church was facing people who opposed their ministry. As a church, they were suffering some persecution. They were engaged in what Paul calls conflict as they tried to live out their heavenly citizenship. So then there was a definite need for them, a need as a church to be what Paul describes here in verse 27 to be a church who were standing firm, to be a church who were unified in one spirit and one mind, a church who were striving side by side together in the gospel and for the gospel. There were far too many threats afoot for them to be operating in disunity, for them to be operating in sort of an individualistic approach. They needed a solid, unified, corporate togetherness for the gospel, which, by the way, friends, is precisely what the church needs today because of the time that we live in, because of the threats to the church that are continuing to emerge almost on a daily basis. We desperately need a spirit-birthed, powerful sense and reality of unity and togetherness for the gospel where individual agendas and personal agendas take a backseat. Amen? I want you to notice the military 
and athletic overtones in this latter part of verse 27. Paul uses those words, standing firm. The Greek here carries military overtones. The picture is of a line of soldiers, imagine this in your mind's eye, a line of soldiers digging into their position as an enemy advances toward them. Or if you like, to change the the, the picture a little bit, we can picture a group of offensive linemen on a football team who dig in together on the line of scrimmage and together they try to prevent the other team's defense from breaking through. The church is to stand firm, as Paul says here, in one spirit with one mind as we carry out our mission as exiles who are engaging the culture for the gospel. Do notice the stress in this part of Philippians on the unity of the church. Don't miss it. In one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Did you know that one of the most powerful witnesses to those in the world concerning the power of the gospel is the unity of those who claim to believe that gospel. It's one of the most powerful witnesses to the world. Disunity, disunity amongst believers, fracture amongst believers, tearing Infighting amongst believers is, of course, a terrible witness to the power of the gospel. As a local church, we must always actively strive for unity, and we must be ruthless in cutting out practices that destroy unity, like gossip and like backbiting, to name just two. What's crucial for us always to have in the forefront of our thinking and to remember is that in John 17, 21, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for the unity of believers, that we all may be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. Unity in the church is so very important to the heart of God for the purposes of his mission to the world. And as we've said in times past, unity in the church does not mean homogeneity. In other words, unity does not mean that all of us have to be clones of one another. That's not what unity means. There will be a beautiful diversity amongst us of backgrounds of colors, of traditions, of views and styles. But when it comes to what Paul here calls the faith of the gospel, or we might say the faith that is the gospel, or the faith once for all delivered to the saints, when it comes to that, there must be a deep and rigorous unity. Notice here in verse 27 that we have this phrase, striving side by side. If any of you saw the movie Risen about the resurrection of Jesus, 
You may remember that in the opening battle scene, they depicted Roman legionnaires advancing together side by side in what's called turtle formation. It was an actual formation that they used where the shields that the soldiers carried uh, formed both a seamless wall in front of them and a seamless roof over top of their heads to ward off the swords and the spears and the arrows of the enemy. That picture is very much in keeping with the Greek word that Paul uses here, which we translate as striving side by side. The picture of the church is this. Opposition comes at the church. Arrows, weapons, darts. But the opposition must not divide us. It must not divide us. We are to operate in corporate solidarity for king and gospel, striving side by side, selfless, watching out for our teammates, ditching our individual agendas, and working instead for the greater value of King Jesus and his gospel. Can we see how this text really challenges the atmosphere of individualism that each and every one of us breathe in our culture. For Paul, the church operates for gospel interests in a corporate togetherness, in a solidarity that has been wrought by the Spirit of God. In verse 28, Paul continues, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. We think here of Jeremiah 1.8, where God said to Jeremiah, do not be afraid of them. Why? For I am with you to deliver you. Paul in 128 says to the Philippian church that despite whatever panic, whatever fear their opponents were trying to create in them, and they, the opponents were trying to do that, despite that, they weren't to be frightened in anything. They were not to be paralyzed in fear. Sure, you can have emotion, but don't be paralyzed in fear. Now, we can't be entirely sure of the precise identification of the opponents that Paul mentions here. The most we can say is that they were most likely unbelieving people in the city of Philippi who were trying to intimidate the Philippian church or curb the influence of the Philippian church. Paul says, in the authority of Almighty God, don't let them frighten you. Do not fear. And then notice what he says next. Very interesting, friends. He says, This is a clear sign to these opponents of what? Of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Now, notice that first word in the sentence, the word this. This 
is a clear sign to them. And we ask the question, what does the word this refer to here? What is a clear sign to them? And the most likely answer is the word this refers to what Paul has just described. Namely, standing firm in the gospel with unity and striving side by side for the gospel and not being frightened. This, this faithfulness and steadfastness in the face of persecution is a clear sign to your opponents, a clear omen to your opponents of their destruction, but of your salvation. Now, isn't this interesting? When we as believers are faithful and when we stand firm in Jesus Christ during persecution and during opposition to our convictions, It is a sign, Paul says, that points in two different directions. Direction one, our faithfulness to Jesus when we are persecuted points to the destruction of our persecutors. Now this is strong language here. This word destruction is a very sharp and very strong word. It's the same Greek word, notice, that is used in Revelation 17 of the destiny of the beast. The word describes nothing less than an everlasting state of torment and death. When as believers we faithfully undergo persecution, that faithfulness is a sign of the destruction of the everlasting torment of our persecutors. God has set this up as a sign that points in that direction. But the second direction that our faithfulness under under persecution points to is our final salvation. The fact that we will be fully and finally saved by God. According to the New Testament, salvation is past, present, and future. As believers, we are saved already, we are being saved in the present, and we await final salvation. And here, it's final salvation that Paul is talking about here in this verse. When we stand firm for the faith, while encountering opposition, while encountering persecution, it is a sign that points to our future, final, eternal salvation. And Paul concludes verse 28 by saying, and that from God. The word that in this part of the verse refers to the whole enchilada in verse 28. In other words, as Moises Silva has it, the conflict, the destruction, the perseverance, the salvation in verse 28, all of it is from God. Nothing in our experience takes place outside of God's superintendence. Amen? And that's a massive comfort to us. In verse 29... 
Paul comments now on the situation of the Philippians. Or more accurately, we could say, Paul now theologically interprets the opposition and the persecution that they are facing. He says, notice what he says, for it has been, what? Granted to you. Now, we need to stop there for a moment. Because this is very important. This verse is a heavy verse. It's very important. I know we're saying a lot of stuff about Greek words this morning. Here's another one. Fix your eyes on those words, has been granted, in verse 29. The single Greek word behind that translation has to do, listen, has to do with giving freely as a favor or giving graciously. Giving freely as a favor or giving graciously. The word is closely related, in fact, to the concept of grace. So this is about God freely giving in his grace or freely giving out of his grace. And what is it that God gives so freely and so graciously here in verse 29? He gives two things. First, Paul says, now notice this, it has been granted to you, given in grace to you, that for the sake of Christ, notice the Christ-centeredness here, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. So there's the first thing that God gives freely and graciously. For Christ's sake, God graciously and freely gives belief in Jesus. He creates And he gives a trusting and ongoing faith in Jesus Christ. God does that. As John Kitchen says, God gives the opportunity, inclination, ability, and the act of believing in Christ. You see, friends, it's not our oratorical skill that will create faith in a person. Neither is it our forceful human persuasion or our clever evangelistic methods. As Bruce Demarest clarifies it, only the power of God through the Spirit, only the power of God through the Spirit can produce living faith in a spiritually dead sinner. God grants belief in Jesus Christ. But the second thing in this verse that God gives freely and graciously to believers is something that is much more startling. And here, it's here that God's word poses a direct question to each and every one of us concerning our theology of suffering. What is your theology of suffering? What is mine? Is our theology of suffering actually informed and shaped by the Word of God? Listen carefully to what the Apostle says here. He says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, 
but also suffer for his sake. Listen, friends. According to Paul in this verse, the suffering that the Philippians were experiencing, which in the context of the story was of the story was persecution, intimidation from their opponents because of their standing firm in Jesus Christ. This suffering they experienced was something that was granted to them, given freely and in grace to them from God himself. Yes, it was granted to them by God. See, it wasn't simply, listen carefully, it wasn't simply that suffering was inevitable and they'd better keep a stiff upper lip and just try to get through the suffering. It wasn't that it was just inevitable. Nor was it that their suffering was some sort of unforeseen accident that took everybody by surprise, including God. Rather, as this verse tells us, the Philippian suffering for the sake of Christ was divinely granted to them. It was what Moises Silva calls, quote, a manifestation of God's gracious dealings with them. Again, their suffering was a manifestation of God's gracious dealings with them. Now, if we have been drinking from the poisoned fountain of health and wealth teaching, these words of Paul will certainly strike us as very strange. Suffering? A gracious grant from God? And yet there's really no way to do interpretive gymnastics with this verse and get around what Paul so clearly says here. When like the Philippians, we live obediently to God in a world that hates him. When we live and act and talk and walk as citizens of the heavenly commonwealth in the midst of an unbelieving world, when we unabashedly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ in a world that is antagonistic to our convictions, we can expect suffering. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. Did you hear that? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. As believers, we are destined for afflictions. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3. Now again, we have to be clear that in the context of our verse, and I want you to listen carefully, in the context here of Philippians 1.29, the suffering in question is suffering that a person experiences because of his or her living worthy of the gospel. 
As Stephen Fowle puts it, the suffering that Paul has in mind here is suffering that happens because of one's convictions about the crucified and resurrected one. So this isn't about suffering in general. It's about the more specific suffering that comes because of one's steadfast allegiance to Jesus. And in kindness, in kindness, God grants or he gives such suffering to his people. Why does he do that? What's the benefit for the sufferer? The benefit of suffering is made very clear in Romans chapter 5, where Paul tells us to rejoice in suffering. Why? Because suffering, he says, produces all sorts of fruit. It's not wasted. He says suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The fruits there, the fruits of endurance, character, and hope all grow from suffering. Amen? And furthermore, to quote Matthew Harmon, I love this, he says, suffering is one of God's appointed means to make his people more like Christ. (laughs) To make his people more like Christ. This becomes clear later in Philippians, in Philippians 3.10, where Paul desires to share in Christ's sufferings so that Paul can become more like Jesus, more like his master. Now, friends, again, I ask you here, does all of this sound foreign to us as we go through this text? Does this sound foreign to you? The question is, do we live in this spiritual postal code with Paul? Do we resonate deep down with him here or? Are we struggling to identify with what he's describing here? I think a big issue that we in the contemporary church need to wonder about, that we need to ask ourselves seriously is this. And I was asking myself this week, so I don't exclude myself. We need to ask ourselves, are we experiencing intimidation and opposition from the powers? If not, what's wrong? If we are not provoking opposition as the church of Jesus Christ, might it be an indication that we are not living lives worthy of the gospel? If it's too quiet, if we are finding that we are not suffering at all, Because of our faith, could it mean that we need to repent? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And then finally, verse 30, engaged in the same, notice the word, conflict, 
be good for somebody to write a book on the Christian life and have that as the title. Seriously. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul says to the Philippians here that they were engaged in the same conflict that he'd been engaged in, in the same conflict that they had seen Paul have. They were partners in the gospel with him. In the early days of the Philippian church plant, which we have recorded in Acts 16, the Philippians had seen Paul as he was seized by the authorities and dragged into the marketplace and falsely accused and stripped and beaten and flogged and then thrown into jail. Conflict. And now Paul had again been arrested in Rome and been thrown in prison again. Conflict. Conflict for the sake of Jesus Christ. Conflict for the sake of the gospel. The Greek word that is translated conflict here is the Greek word agon, from which we get our English word agony. Agon. What is it to follow Jesus? What is it to witness for Jesus Christ and stand for Jesus Christ in an age, in a world system that is dying and passing away? It is agon, says Paul in this verse. Following Jesus Christ and going hard after him is not a bed of roses. It is not a cakewalk. It is agon. If you're actually following Jesus Christ, expect difficulty, expect resistance, expect wrestling, expect struggle. Remember that you live in a world, listen, you live in a world that crucified Jesus, that hung him up to die on a cross. This is a world that tried to exterminate him who was the very wisdom of God who was God himself come in the flesh. And servants of the crucified like you and I are not above our master. Well, friends, our time is gone. The overall picture that we are left with, having traveled through these four verses of God's word, is that the Christian life, I wish I could say it was different, but it's not the easy, self-centered self-improvement-focused life that it is so often cracked up to be. What Paul has described in this passage is the urgent need in our Christian, Christian citizenship to stand firm together, to be unified with one another, to strive like soldiers working side by side, because as persons who dare to genuinely live in a manner worthy of Jesus and his gospel, we will certainly encounter opposition. It's just a fact that is laid out in Scripture. Paul also talked about the very real possibility of being frightened by opponents as one lives out a robust Christian witness. And Paul also talked here about suffering for that witness and how such suffering is a gracious manifestation of God's kindness. And he further described the Christian life in terms of agon, conflict. Well, I pray for each and every one of us 
that if we're not already this way, that we would be people, become people, who genuinely resonate deeply with the descriptions and the experiences that Paul describes in this text because that resonance in us is a good indication that we are actually disciples of Jesus Christ. That we aren't just playing church, but that we actually are the church. May God continue to renew our minds and may he graciously act like sandpaper through this text if we are deceived and following a counterfeit Jesus. May he save us by his power. May he cause us to treasure above all else the suffering servant Jesus Christ who stood firm for the glory of God and who gave himself to conflict and to death for God's glory and for our redemption. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which sometimes has the effect of uh, stirring us in in an uncomfortable way. But again, you have come to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And so we thank you, Lord, that if we leave this place today unsettled, it is your spirit's bidding. Knowing that you always want to bring us from A to B to C to D, you never want to leave us complacent. So I pray, Lord God, that you would mercifully, graciously get under our skin for Jesus Christ and his gospel. Go with us as we leave this place. In the name of Jesus, amen.